connection to Slam's night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James. With me tonight is Jason. Hello. And, of course, Chris. Hey, everybody. Now, tonight, we're going to talk about some amazing new discoveries that are being reported on in the science world. And we're also going to talk to our new best friend, hopefully best friend, we'll see how it goes, Dr. Steffi Deem. And now let's get started with the news. We all hope we'll make it to the end of our days with all the limbs and digits we are born with. But, unfortunately, we know for some that won't be the case. But that does not mean, as we slide gallantly into the future, that we should be stuck with yesterday's prosthetics. Which is why today we are talking about soft robotics. Recently, out of the University of Colorado Boulder, research is being done in the realm of softer, friendlier, more articulate prosthetics. Researchers specifically are looking at fins of fish to try to understand their properties and, most importantly, how to replicate their special ability to be both very rigid and very memorable about its form, while also being able to deform and change and be manipulated in many ways. This is not something that is just a sail through water. As you imagine a fish's fin, it's not just a dumb, fleshy thing that fish flail about to try to get from point A to point B. Fish fins are so some of the most delicate methods of manipulating water that nature has yielded. Despite Living with fish in nature for the entirety of human existence, humans have never taken a closer look at what makes fish fins so well-structured to manipulate water in the way that they do. The secret is segmentation. According to this research, when you look very closely at the structures of fish fins, you will see little units, little segmented units that allow for a manipulation and a bend. It's kind of like a uh, Jacob's Ladder, <laughs> if you will. Holding a Jacob's Ladder, you've got blocks on these uh, strands of ribbon, and you can pose them around, bend them one way or the other. Under another angle, under another pressure, they're able to hold a form that you wouldn't assume having just watched that toy flop around in air. Now, there's some other uh, differences, but I was very proud of that analogy. So, <laughs> why does it matter? Well, again, as we see more and more action in the realm of robotics and the ways that robotics can improve our lives, understanding these structures on a fundamental level will allow us to mimic and replicate them with the hope of eventually applying this to things like replacement hands. As we were saying before the show got started, we could probably make the equipment hauling exoskeletons from aliens. But if you want the warm, if slightly standoffish and unsettling caress of a replicant from Blade Runner, it's going to take a little more to get there. So what do you think, guys? Are you happy with the exoskeleton, or are you more looking for the, uh, a relationship with a replicant? 
I, you know, I'm actually not interested in either of those. What I'm most interested in is the fact that we're just now starting to understand what it is that makes up fish fins. This is a really cool problem that's being studied. Think about your tongue for a second. You can make your tongue change shapes in all sorts of different ways. You can flatten your tongue. You can curl it up so it looks like a taco shell. Some people can curl it up in a way that makes it look like a flower. It's really weird looking. Um, and they can bend it in weird sorts of ways. And that's controlled by all the intrinsic muscles within your tongue. Your tongue has all these muscles. It has the major longitudinal muscles that are going to project your tongue forward so you can stick it out. But then there are also muscles within the substance of the tongue that allow it to change shape. And that's useful while we're swallowing and speaking and those sorts of things. But fish fins do the same kind of thing in the water. They change their shape to adapt or to react to the reaction forces of the water itself as they're propelling themselves through it. But there's no muscle in fish fins. And that is just fascinating. So then what is the fish fin made up of? And it, you sort of alluded to it, Chris, it's these small pieces of what they call ray, right? Um, and these rays are made up of cartilaginous material that stiffen the fins and they can transmit what they call actuation. Within those, those rays, you know, there are, piece, there are parts that are mineral, uh, there are parts that are not fully mineralized, and it's not understood how those work together. But what they did identify is that there were uh, a whole bunch of very small units within each one of these rays that allows greater number of segments to have a more higher precision in movement, right? And so um, I think back on the work I did uh, on monkey tails for a long time, which I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Um, but I did work on monkey tails for, for, I don't even want to admit, the better part of seven years. I and mean, that was all I really thought about where, you know, what is the structure of a monkey tail? What does the bone look like in a monkey tail? What does the, the muscle and the tendon and ligaments and that stuff look like inside of a monkey tail? And it turns out that monkeys that can suspend their bodies with their tail, they call that a prehensile tail. Not all monkeys can do that, but all of the monkeys that can are neotropical. And so they're living in Central and South America. But again, not all of the Central and South American monkeys do have prehensile tails. But if you have a prehensile tail, you have a larger number of shorter segments within the tail. So you have finer mm. degree of precision. Mm -hmm. These rays within the fins are sort of constructed the same way. I and mean, that's really fascinating, except there's no muscle pulling on it. So really the question is, what is generating the forces in there? And, and in particular, not just moving the forces, you know, moving the, the fins themselves, but reacting against the hydrostatic pressure of the water, pushing against those fins and keeping their shape. It's really fascinating work. And so the application down the road is really interesting. But the fact that we don't know any of this stuff yet is really what like piqued my curiosity. How many times do we come across something where something so fundamental, fish have only, the, this is how fish get around. This is how they're fish. And yet, we never, we've never looked this closely at it. It blows my mind that that there are still realms like that. You know what right. I mean? Absolutely. I mean, the fact is, we have we know quite a bit about how fish move through water. We've done we, not me, but science writ large has the done big a club, bunch, right? The big club, and anyone can be a member of that club. We're not exclusive. If you want to get in touch, get in touch, and uh, we can help you out. But the science club has done a bunch of research in terms of the locomotion of fish. How do they move through water? Locomotion of all sorts of animals, not just fish. Feeding in fish. We know how things work. So we know how fins work, but we don't understand how fins work, right? It, which is just nuts to think that we know it at one level and we know nothing about it at another level. Right. Um, but that's pretty much what it is throughout all of science, right? Think back, you know, to things like are masks effective for preventing the spread of a respiratory virus, right? Or at least preventing the spread of respiratory droplets that are carrying respiratory virus. We know that's true. We know that there are several studies that have demonstrated this empirically and without a doubt, but we don't have great data for COVID at this point. Because again, it's really hard to run a randomized controlled trial in the face of a pandemic where it's unethical to have a control group that you are actively not allowing to participate in the intervention you think is going to work, right? You can't run a, a controlled trial, randomized controlled trial in this case right now. You could do it for other reasons, you know, in other situations, but not for COVID. Heck, some people might even self-select. 
Well, right. I think that experiment is happening, but it's not. It hasn't been designed in a particular way that's controlling for it, unfortunately. You know, <laughs> ivermectin aside, I think what really makes me happy about this story is that robotics specifically, but I think this would generally go for prosthetic manufacturers. I think maybe that is is one of the things that can run in parallel with this study is they're looking outside of what a anatomically normal human hand would look like for their prosthetic reproduction. You know, the the really high-end independently actuated robotic hands that they would use as a uh, prosthetic have like the three phalange grasp you know they they're still kind of stuck on that this is what happens in humans and you can see the limitations with that instead of thinking like well why don't we pretend this isn't a human hand and just make the best most adaptive prosthetic we can do. And it seems like that is the direction that this field is taking now. And that's really exciting for people, especially for people who really kind of depend on this to navigate the world. That is not always uh, easy for them to navigate. Absolutely. That's a different conversation. No, this is a really important point. And it wasn't to minimize what you were saying earlier, Chris. You know, that's really an important application of all of this work. I was just struck by the fact that we don't have some of the basic data still. Right. Because right. no one has thought to look at that. And it's just fascinating. I mean, fish have different bone than mammals do anyway. It's just different. And uh, because of that, it, it behaves mechanically in a different way. And so the study that we're referring to here was conducted by a mechanical engineer, at the University of Colorado Boulder. And it's interesting because it's being approached from a mechanical engineering perspective, not necessarily from the biology perspective or even the biomedical our biological engineering perspective, but it is just another piece of that puzzle that's going to help us get toward these much improved prosthetics. When I was a postdoc, I was in a lab where there was um, an engineer from one of the major engineering firms in town who was working on a really interesting glove that would self-open a hand using some kind of proprietary metal substance that I wasn't allowed to know anything about, um, <laughs> which was really just made me more interested, right? It's of like, course. Tell right. me more about it, right? Um, but the idea was that, you know, in patients who have like cerebral palsy, for example, where their muscles are so constricted and they can't release, the muscles contract and they don't release easily, a glove like that that could open itself up would allow the fingers to then sort of become unconstricted or uncontracted. And, you know, it would be helpful for developing muscle tone on the other side of the the hand, right? This is another way, right, that maybe something uh, that's getting at the same kind of question, right? Or at least that is another way that's getting at the same kind of question that this study is looking at. And that is, how can you change the shape of a structure without like a a contraction generating uh, muscle type structure? I love that after everybody who uh, needs more articulate and more gentle prosthetics for fine motor skills, after we've helped everybody who needs something like that achieve a, a level of you know autonomy that they might not enjoy now, I look forward to my own personal shark mech. <laughs> <laughs> See, and all I can hear in the back of my head is my youngest or my oldest kid saying something like, I can't wait till I have a prosthetic hand that can just aimbot in Fortnite and I'm going to be the king, right? It's like, yeah, I don't know that that's going to work so well, but but maybe, right? Some kind of prosthetic that continually fires, you know. Oh my God, uh, it's like a turbo on your pinky. That's what I'm saying, right? I mean, maybe, maybe. Um, not to minimize, like, you know, that would be uh, a use for someone who, you know, doesn't actually need a prosthetic, right? But this could be life-changing for people who really do need the use of, of their hands in a way that they don't currently have. We're talking cyberpunk and people are going to be able to play violin again. That's right, exactly, exactly. But they'll also be able to play cyberpunk. Yeah. Right? So, so. <laughs> which is much better now, BTW. <laughs> <laughs> so we talk about the importance of having, you know, fingers that can grasp and in particular on our hands, one of the things that we associate with being uniquely human even though it's not a uniquely human trait by any stretch is an opposable thumb. I mean actually we have a particular nerve 
in the hand called the recurrent branch of the median nerve that innervates just the muscles that control the thumb. And hand surgeons who clip that muscle during hand surgery are often in for a, a, a serious world of pain uh, in terms of malpractice because the quality of life of someone who no longer has the function of their thumb as in opposition is dramatically reduced compared to those of us who can oppose our thumbs. And I say us, even though I'm actually one of the few people who has some weird shape to my hands and I can't properly oppose my, my thumbs, go figure. I'm sure this comes as no shock to most of my teachers through high school. Nevertheless, knowing that that might be something down the road that can be rectified, not mine personally, but for people who don't have the, the use of their thumb in a prosthetic that's based on fish fin morphology is just really cool. Totally agree. I guess you've all passed and we don't need to do a Voight-Conf test, so we're, we're good to move on. Hey, going from super cool, let's go to super hot. We're all familiar with a little nuclear fission, right? That process of splitting atoms and releasing all sorts of energy, sometimes for fun, sometimes for not so fun. But fusion, that's a lot harder and perhaps a greater prize. For fusion has benefits that far outweigh what we've been able to accomplish with fission. For those of us that might need a little fusion uh, refresher, if you're not familiar with nuclear fusion, it's different from its cousin nuclear fission, which powers today's nuclear plants by taking big, unstable atoms and splitting them. Fusion takes small atoms and combines them to forge larger atoms. It is the universe's ubiquitous power source. It's what causes the sun and stars to shine. It's the reaction that created most of the atoms that we're made of. Scientists have long been excited about fusion because it doesn't produce carbon dioxide or long-lived radioactive waste. That's a big one. Since the fuel it requires, two types of hydrogen, known as deuterium and tritium, it's plentiful enough to last us thousands of years, and because there's zero chance of meltdown, the other big one. Meltdown's not very fun. Unlike renewables such as wind and solar power, plants based on fusion would also take up little space compared with the power they would generate. Fusion unlocks a distributed high-yield power system. There's ideas that I have seen that you could use these theoretical devices in applications such as subways or public transportation hubs like that that could all have their unique little device powering it rather than the you know outside in pattern grid that we have today. But again, that's all been real tough unless you can actually make a fusion reactor. Well, we just got a little bit closer. The experimental Wendelstein 7X nuclear fusion reactor. The new major advance announced by physicists involves ongoing efforts to confront energy losses inherent in the design of the experimental Wendelstein 7X nuclear fusion reactor. Stellarators are distinct in comparison to the more conventional, symmetrical, donut-shaped Tokamak fusion reactors because the former employ maddeningly complex structures full of labyrinthine twists and turns. Everybody get that? It's actually a lot simpler than that sentence makes it sound like. Traditional, or uh, shall we say up until now, reactors have been largely donut-shaped. The idea is you've got this space in which the fusion reaction can occur and you try to contain it in that space for the reaction and then you, you know, power some, some turbine or something much, you know, like we have today with uh, the energy that's released. The difference is that the reaction now, at least what these physicists have built, the reaction now can occur in a 
extremely complex structure. I imagine like your uh, muffler. If you ever, if you ever like me, got to play with uh, the muffler that just came off the car and you dropped a rubber ball through it, you learned quickly that that rubber ball ain't ever coming back. That <laughs> <laughs> there is a complex series of chambers within that that accomplish varying things to you know very scrubbing and, and, and silencing uh, to the gas coming out the engine. Anyway, it's similar to that. And what's wild about this new technology is that it's so complex and so interconnected and you know you, you think of like just imagine the most complicated structure in your head. Using a supercomputer, scientists were able to refocus the lost energy back into the reaction and thus massively prevent energy loss sort of inherent with this uh, kind of action. How did I do? I mean, you did way better than I could have done for sure, Chris. This kind of astrophysics, you know, um, is way over my head. And we're actually fortunate that we have an expert uh, with us on this episode this week, Dr. Stephanie Deem from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who is actually a, a fusion scientist and is going to talk about the, the work that she's doing up there. To me, I am so glad we have some of the smartest people in the world working on this problem because this is our potential safety net against climate change, right? I mean, we have a real problem, and that is fossil fuel burning um, leading to greenhouse gas emissions, leading to a climate change that we are not going to be able to sustain, or at least not going to be able to make it through a bottleneck in terms of the existential crisis that it presents for our species and many other species. Coupled with, if I if I can just jump in, coupled with with the there you know as good as our renewables are getting, and they are getting better and better every year, there is a certain energy threshold uh, in terms of effort to um, harvest it that is really difficult to achieve with renewables. Right. Absolutely. And I think we actually have a real problem on our hands that we're starting to see as well with regard to renewables in the sense that some of the things like hydroelectric energy is is really susceptible to climate change. Right. And so look at the Colorado River right now and Lake Mead. It's hard to see, unfortunately. Correct. Exactly. I think it's something like 35% of its um, height, you know, right. of its largest size basins that are feeding most of the western part of the United States. And so it's a real problem because of climate change. So what we need are new energy sources. And so so I'm really excited to to see such advances happening rapidly with this uh, fusion energy because like you said before Chris, it is virtually toxic waste free, right? I mean there's not there's no toxic waste that's coming from it. It is an a renewable or I guess it's an unlimited supply of energy if it can be contained. Um, and that's been the biggest challenge, right? Dr. Uh, Deem is going to talk about that in our interview, about some of the challenges that presents and how they solve that problem at Wisconsin. And, you know, it's similar to the the Taurus that you were describing before, the, the tokamak, you know, and uh, going from a donut shape to a more labyrinthine shape to help try to keep the energy moving in a direction that uh, they can contain it. Um, right. You know, much more effectively. I think this dovetails really well into what we were talking about in the last episode too. Is that being having access to such massive distributed compute? In we were talking about protein folding and and you know predicting protein folding. Uh, and I'm fascinated by the ways that we're able to apply this giant globe-spanning compute engine that we've built and how that's making scientists' lives easier. And I find that entire realm so fascinating. One of the more exciting things, too, is that, you know, for the past, I don't know, 30 years, fusion has always been 10 years down the road. And right. it will always be 10 years down the road until now. You know, we're finally getting toward that Jetsons-like future that we've all been promised since we've been children. Uh, and the fact that we're doing it with fusion potentially and not fission uh, is a lot uh, a lot easier and a lot less like real clenching up moments of oh no i i watched that chernobyl documentary like ooh i i personally grew up an hour away from three mile island which was you know not a great time when i was a real little kid uh so 
this is all this is all easier to take there's less down there's really no downside other than right now making we're it just work <laughs> well, we're, we're just at that th- so i think like it's no longer theoretical that this can create a plus side of energy it's just mm-hmm. on the very low plus side right now right um, but like jumping that threshold is a huge deal. I think if I recall, they were saying the amount of energy that they're releasing is really only enough to boil a pot of water currently. Correct. Right. But to get to that point, they were like running huge energy deficits before just to like start the reaction. Right. Um, so this is, this is a really exciting time. So who knows? It is. The world has changed a whole lot in the last 10 years. I can't even imagine what the next 10 years is going to bring, right? But I mean, 10 years ago, um, most of us weren't texting all the time. Certainly not on full keyboards, right? Maybe on alphanumeric keyboards, uh, you know, you know, where you just like a telephone, but not a keyboard keyboard. And, and uh, now it's, you know, it's cheaper to video call with, you know, your friends and relatives overseas on a Wi-Fi than it is to call them. And talk to them without video, right? I mean, right. the world yeah. is weird. True. It's true. I mean, we could not have done this podcast 10 years ago, uh, mostly because I I didn't have a microphone. Uh, <laughs> so it would have literally been impossible for me. So it, it's uh, it, you're right. It's amazing what 10 years can do. And, you know, everyone all of a sudden getting comfortable with Zoom. Can we just, you know, if if, if uh, Fusion has always been 10 years out, can we maybe start to say it's getting closer to always nine years out? Yeah, move the clock, like yeah. the doomsday clock. <laughs> As the doomsday clock gets closer to midnight, the Fusion clock gets <laughs> closer as well. Or at least oh, ideally I, you know, it does, right? I mean, I that's... Really, Let's try to stick that landing, right? Come on, human race. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think what we're all finding is that a lot of this is so far over our heads that we can only talk in, like, vague platitudes. And, and maybe this is the time Isn't to that my job expert. on this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I'm sure that's why I'm here. Rather than talk to, to, you know, or listen to us, the three amateurs here, we should just bring in... We should bring in the big gun here. Oh, finally. Well, we will be right back after this quick break with our conversation with Dr. Steffi Deem. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Phil. And together, we host the History's B-Side podcast. You know, history is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. Every week, we break down history's biggest stories and the forgotten people who made them happen. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Or follow at History's B-Side on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. This is History's B-Side. Our next guest is Dr. Steffi Deem, who is an assistant professor in the engineering physics department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She is a former research scientist to the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in the Fusion Energy Division, and currently she is the PI of the Pegasus 3 experiment, which is a fusion energy and plasma experiment focused on innovation in plasma startup techniques to reduce cost and complexity of future fusion reactors. Steffi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much. And thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you here as well. I, the first question I want to ask you is, how did you get into fusion research? Tell us about your path to this corner of science, because this is fascinating and so far afield from what I do as a biologist. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. And it was completely by accident. So 
in uh, high school, I, I loved art so much. I did. I took like every art class. I also liked science. And when it came time to picking where I would go to college, I was actually, and what kind of degree I would pursue, I actually was leaning more towards art. But my parents, um, and they're not scientists or anything like that, they were concerned about job prospects that was very big on their minds. So they were like, my dad had met an engineer once and was like, it's easy to get a job if you're an engineer. Mm -hmm. So I applied to UW, got into the College of Engineering, showed up on campus, talked to a couple engineers. This is when I was like registering for classes a couple couple weeks ahead of time. And I ran into a nuclear engineer and they're like, nuclear engineering, easiest engineering degree to get a job with. There's so many job opportunities. It also combines physics, which I really did like physics at the time too. So I was like sold. At the time, um, you say. Does that mean that you no right. longer have a, an interest in physics? Oh. Oh, I do love physics. Okay, okay. We'll jump ahead because I kind of dove right all into physics for grad school. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so going back in time to undergrad, uh, day two on campus, I kind of freaked out because I didn't have a way to pay for college. Mm. So I went to my department chair and I said, who's hiring undergrads? And he gave me a long list of people that I could talk to, professors on campus that may be hiring. And the first one who actually opened their door um, when I knocked on it was someone who does fusion energy research. So that so, is a really interesting story right. because um, I have to tell you as an undergrad, I never would have thought to go knock on the door of a department chair and say, who's hiring students, right? I would immediately go get yeah. lost in the shuffle of a major public institution and never find work like that. I, I managed to get myself into a laboratory, but it was only because I went up to the professor who was teaching the class and said, I want to volunteer in your, in your lab. How can I do that? Right. And she said, Yeah, come on in. So is that who gave you that advice? Was that something that you just thought up? Or did someone give you that advice? Because that to me sounds like some of the most valuable advice one can give an undergraduate student in the first week of classes. Yeah, I think I was honestly clueless and pretty scared because bills were coming on the horizon. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have that fear going in. You're like, I I I I'm gonna try all avenues. So I would just encourage anyone out there to just try this approach. I don't mind if people contact me too, because like in my research group, we hire undergrads as well. But really it was, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. That's awesome. That's really, really yeah. interesting. So fast forward then to graduate school, you you absolutely dove headfirst into physics. And so yeah. how did you get from grad school to where you are now? Grad school, I went into astrophysics, studied just, you know, the physics of plasma, which is the fuel for fusion. And then and then we'll get time, back to that in a few it, minutes. Yeah, exactly. Then when it came time to graduating, again, I was kind of looking for job opportunities. And it's great to network with people at conferences. I'm just going to throw that out there. Oh, sure. mm -hmm. Because just go up to people, talk about the research that they do. And I ran into, you know, researchers during my graduate career at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and they have a fusion energy division. So um, I was hired there as a staff scientist. And so I worked there for about 10 years on fusion energy research around the world, actually. And I a uh, couple times came in, you know, working with students, and I really found that I enjoyed working with students because they really challenged me. They mm -hmm. asked really good questions that, you know, kind of change your perspective about things and really make you understand things on a deeper level. And I find that kind of leads to creativity, innovation. Uh, and I really wanted to do more of that. So Very that's cool. when I started, yeah, applying for uh, faculty positions. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. That's a great story. I mean, a lot of us have sort of that fortuitous aspect of it. Like we just happened to run into someone, opened a door for us, gave us a leg up and helped us get through, right? But you sought that out in a way that I have never heard it like described before. I've never heard an undergraduate. In all the years I've been doing this, never heard an yeah. undergraduate. I've never had an undergraduate come directly to me that wasn't in a class of mine and ask me something, right? And ask me, you know, about the research going on in the lab or how do they get involved? And there are programs that, you know, over the last... 10, 15 years on university campuses have really sort of made that process more of a bottleneck, right? And they've sort of aggregated yeah. all these applications and helped funnel people toward internships. But even with those, you don't get that kind of 
ingenuity, right? Of, hey, you know what? Yeah. I'm just going to go talk to someone and ask, right? Because you didn't know any different. And I, I really am fascinated by that. That's really awesome. Yeah, I do some of, you know, outreach talks geared towards middle school and high school. And I always try to tell people that approach is available. And also it gives you a great opportunity to find things not only that you like, but maybe you get a research position as an undergrad and you hate it. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, this was my major, but maybe I'm going to change now and do something different. That is, that is excellent. That's great advice. I really appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners, scientists or non-scientists will appreciate that. My question for you now really gets toward the research aspect of it. So on the Pegasus 3 experiment website, um, the research is described as involving experiments with high temperature plasmas through magnetic confinement in a spherical torus geometry. So could you explain what that means to me? Yeah, let's break that down. Fantastic. (laughs) Okay. So the way, if you look up into the sky, look at the sun, that is a big burning ball fusion, you know, it's a fusion experiment happening in real time. Um, The way that the sun gets its power, what drives the sun is fusion energy. And, and what that is, is if you heat up isotopes or, you know, particles um, really, really hot. So normally the nuclei will repel each other because they're like charges, but you, if you heat them up super, super hot, they'll actually fuse together. And that releases a lot of energy. The way that does is going back to E equals MC squared. So Einstein's equation. Mm -hmm. If you weigh the original, you know, isotopes that fuse together, it's heavier than what the resulting products are. And that change in mass goes directly to energy. So let's talk about that equation for a second, because there may be listeners who don't know that that equation very well. So can you explain what the variables are in E equals MC squared and how that relates to what you just told us about? Yep. So E is energy, and that is equal to the quantity of M, which is the mass, times C, the speed of light, squared. So what that means is if you you actually plug in the numbers, we're getting really, really tiny mass changes. Um, But when you multiply that by the speed of light squared, it becomes a really big number. So it gives out a lot of energy. So the isotopes that I look at is hydrogen. Everyone's kind of familiar with hydrogen. Mm-hmm. It's a really light particle. And we can fuse isotopes. They have extra protons actually in the nuclei and they fuse together. When they fuse together, these two isotopes of hydrogen, we're looking at deuterium and tritium. It results in helium, which, you know, we fill balloons. <laughs> You know, things like that. It's safe to humans. Uh, And then a neutron, um, which is energetic. And so it's there's no greenhouse gases, no pollution resulting from that equation or from that um, reaction right there. Yeah. So also described on the website is that the, the application of understanding how these plasmas work in the development of keeping that fusion going is that it's a virtually unlimited, environmentally friendly source of energy, right? And um, that, that, I mean... I wish I had research that was as potentially impactful as that is, right? I mean, that is just yeah. so cool. So how did you get drawn to this particular experiment? Is it because of that outcome or is it because of the mechanics behind the experiment itself? So for me, it was really the reason why I got into fusion energy research beyond the fact that it's completely fascinating to me and I love it is the potential to be this, you know, zero carbon energy source with no pollution. And so this experiment here on campus is really focused on tackling some of the challenges that we need to overcome to actually commercialize fusion energy. Interesting. That is very cool. Yeah. So, so now we know what plasma is, right? We know what the fusion experiment is, but actually, we haven't let, talked about. Let's step back. I don't know if I explained what a plasma was, right? I actually, that may be true. Um, so we should do yeah. that. We should also get there, you know, how, where you're passing them through magnetic confinement in a spherical torus yep. geometry, right? Because uh, that, all of yeah. those, those words together, like I understand individually what they mean. And in fact, as a bone biologist, I love seeing the word torus. In, yeah. in a non-anatomical, you know, yeah. situation. And so that makes me kind of excited. But I want to hear yeah. sort of what all of these words mean together in your language, right? In the language sure. of your science. Yeah. So we'll break it down because like these websites have a lot of complex words to make it concise, but maybe not necessarily mm-hmm. 
readable. Okay, so I mentioned that we heat up these particles super, super hot to get them to fuse together, right? So um, most of our energy comes from a chemical reaction. You're burning something at 2000 degrees, right? Okay. Um, 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. To get these particles to overcome that repulsion, we have to heat the particles up to 2 million degrees. That's insane. 2 million degrees, millions and millions of degrees. Um, and that's in the sun. Right. So when you get something that hot, something really cool happens when you heat up particles that hot. So if you heat, apply heat to a liquid, turns into a gas. You apply heat to a gas, um, you actually strip the electrons from the nuclei and you get this soup of charged particles. Super hot gas, charged particles that can carry currents. And we call this super hot gas a plasma. So that's the fuel for fusion. Does it's it behave? Super hot electric charge gas. Yeah. So it so it behaves similar to a gas still, but it's just the electrons stripped from the protons, you said? So gas kind of like a fluid, but it can also okay. carry currents. And when you apply a magnetic field to it, these charged particles will naturally spin around the magnetic field. Okay. And so that's how we can use magnets to hold on and we call it confine this plasma. There's okay. actually three main categories of how you can confine plasma for fusion. The first is what the sun uses, which is gravity to okay. kind of compress and heat. Like I mentioned, we can use magnets uh, to apply a magnetic field, get the particles to spin around and confine them that way. And then the third way is high energy lasers that are pointed at the fuel pellets that heat it up and compress it. Wow. Yeah. So I've seen lots of pictures of you in a hard hat with, you know, a tool belt yeah. on climbing on top of these reactors. What is that like for you? I mean, is that the most exciting part or is that just part of the job, right? What's the most exciting aspect of all of this? Because as an oh, engineer, that's a great question. right? As an engineer, yeah. you're trained to, 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 you know, want to jump right in and tinker with the machine, right? But at yeah. the same time, as a scientist, you're trained to think about what can you do with that machine, right? And so you're having two parts of your brain pulling at each other, right? What is the most exciting yeah. part of all of this? That's really hard. And it varies on a day-to-day -day basis, if that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> so I really, I really love being an experimentalist because as you mentioned, we get to use our hands. We get to build things mm -hmm. uh, and you really have to build an experiment to actually do the science. And so I like that challenge. There's a lot of engineering challenges that come along when we have to make these really um, high magnetic fields in a small space. So I like kind of figuring that out and working with the constraints that you're given. I mean, you work at a university, you are limited by budget and resources and people available, and that forces you to get creative. So, yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. When, when we're talking about differences in magnitude, right, of scale here. <laughs> because right. Uh, you know, I, you know, the things that we're doing in my lab are vastly less expensive in the grand scheme of things than what you're doing. Yeah. Right? Um, but at the same time, they're also maybe not as critically important for the survival of the planet. Right. And so right. there's a reason why they're less expensive. Yeah. Um, anyway, I am fascinated by that because I'm not an engineer, but I've always loved to tinker with things. Um, and so, yeah. you know, I'm kind of surprised I didn't you know, go down that road. The, the few engineering classes I took were all biomechanics related. I yeah. mean, I took some mechanic, like straight mechanics classes, but most of them were with, with an application toward biology because that's sort of where it makes most sense for me to learn that stuff. But one of the things that I noticed, and and I I suspect this is probably true in your field too, is that there were not a lot of women or people of color right away visible um, in those fields. And so, what was it like as a woman coming into fusion energy? Obviously, you didn't have a problem knocking on doors. Right. Um, right. But but what was that experience like or what was it difficult? Was it not difficult? It was really hard. So just to put it in perspective, my field is probably one of the worst as far as rep representation. Mm -hmm. So it's 92 percent white male, 8 percent right. women, even less on, you know, underrepresented minorities. So they're there, it was really hard at times. And I found I really had to have my own support structure to kind of get through those challenging times and also recognize that sometimes you're not always going to be in a supportive environment. Mm -hmm. 
and you can leave. And it's not quitting. It's acknowledging you deserve better. And so, yeah, keeping that that in mind. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's something that can't be overstated, right? Is that um, if you're in graduate school and it is not working out with the laboratory you're in, leaving that laboratory doesn't mean you've quit. It means if nothing else, at, at the very minimum, it means you've taken care of yourself. And I think that's important. I mean, especially in, in sort of the culture we live in now, right. Where people are starting to understand the importance of this a little bit more and be more open about it. Um, I, I don't think you can understate this. Oh, right. Sorry. Interesting. Okay. So let's turn our attention away from science for a minute, because I know you have one of the most fascinating hobbies of anybody I know. You are an agility dog trainer. Um, you have several yeah. dogs that you run regularly. And so tell us about yeah. that. Like, how did you get started in that? Because that is so interesting. Again, fascinating person here we have. A fascinating yeah. scientist with a fascinating hobby. Thanks. <laughs> I will ju- I just, I like this conversation. So one time I was visiting at a lab, at, you know, at a different state. And a scientist walked up to me and he's like, so I couldn't remember how you spelled your name. So I Googled your name. And now I know your secret hobby and your secret life. (laughs) So yeah, I'm a dog agility um, competitor. And so for those that don't know what dog agility is, it's maybe you've seen these competitions on TV where you train dogs to go through obstacle courses, like the jumps, the tunnels, the weaves, things like that. So I just kind of was looking for something to do. Um, Okay, let's back up. What I got for a graduation present for getting my PhD was I, my parents are like, what would you like? And I, I said a puppy. <laughs> so I got a puppy. <laughs> um, yeah. Her name's Starbuck. So she was um, energetic. I didn't know what to do with her. So I was looking for a hobby that was like completely the opposite of what I did for research. Mm-hmm. And I just found a dog agility class and I started taking it and it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. That's so cool. So now you travel around the country, or at least pre-COVID, you were traveling around the country. Right. Um, taking yeah. your your herd of dogs, because you actually have a pack, right? There's several yeah. of them. Yeah. Some are retired now. So now okay. it's like the two young ones are the on the traveling team right now. <laughs> I remember one named Battlestar, I think. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, Who Battlestar. Was awesome. I saw some of those videos yeah. online. They were just amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so is Battlestar now retired? No, she's still going. Um, my young puppy that I'm training, he's like a year old. His name is Danger Boat. So nice, nice. I I always like to pick names that no one else has. So yeah, yeah but it. we've <laughs> we've competed. If you've seen agility on TV, this is another great story. Um, my division director back at a job I used to work at, he was telling his wife, he like was flipping through the channels, saw dog agility on TV, told his wife, hey, this is what Steffi's Steffi does for her hobbies. As the TV show was announcing me, because I was running on it. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So I've done that and I've um, competed on the U.S. national team too. Wow. So gone overseas. Yeah. That's very cool. All right. Yeah. And so yeah. I-, I like the idea that you chose a hobby that was so far afield from what you do in the lab, right? I think that's important. Yeah. Um, it's something that I haven't done a very good job with myself, right? I tend to find my hobbies related to science more than anything else and that can be unhealthy. Sometimes you need yeah. a complete shutdown. This is inspiring me to start thinking about what kind of hobby Thanks. completely far afield from what I do might be the better way to go. Right. And I used to think maybe yeah. jigsaw puzzles were the way to go. I've done jigsaw puzzles all my life, but then I realized oh. that that's literally my job is putting together a <laughs> jigsaw puzzle. It's just more metaphorical than it is. Literal, yeah. Right. And so while I still enjoy that, like that can't be the one I go to that gets me far away from the lab. Right. Yeah, I will say that like when I at the time thought it would be like as far away as I could in dog agility, you do have to optimize like when you're telling the dogs to change direction, things like that to optimize speed and take advantage of like acceleration, deceleration, (laughs) momentum, things like that. So physics, I mean, it's everywhere. Right. Yeah. Well, that's just a product of the way you think, right? You know, now you're a victim to that, but in a good way, right? Not necessarily a bad way. Yeah. Okay. So if you had one piece of advice for folks who are just starting graduate school, um, this is the last thing I want to ask. What do you want to tell them to do? I think it started to hint at it, right? I mean, this idea that you can quit, but not be a quitter instead be taking care of yourself is important. But other than that, what might you say? 
advocate for yourself. When I started grad school, I found everyone, I don't, I just found everything intimidating about grad school. The professors you've never met, you've moved moved to a new city, um, everything like that. And people aren't as intimidating as you think at first. So uh, kind of opening up, telling people when you're having issues. I would often go into a corner and think I could solve a problem by myself, which you can spend a long time doing. But it's not, a, not a bad idea to give it a yeah. good college try, right? right? I mean, that's going to help yeah. you develop intellectually, but I'll let you finish. Right. There comes a time where you're just like, you know what? I am stuck. And I would like just some input or something like just to know if you're on the right track. Mm -hmm. So I would say stay in communication and advocate for yourself. That's great advice. And I hope that everyone who's listening will, will take that to heart because it's really, really good advice. Advice. I wish also find a hobby. Yeah. Are a field from what you do. Even in grad school. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Totally. You cannot spend all your time thinking about your science. Um, It's not healthy. And ultimately you get, better results when you step away for a little bit. You can spend all night in a lab trying to run an experiment and trying and trying and trying, but if it keeps failing, the best thing to do is not do it again. It's to put everything away, take a break, go home, maybe try it again in a couple of days, maybe the next day, whatever. But definitely after having stepped away for a while, because you'll just come back with with a renewed sense of uh, purpose, right? And you'll figure out what it was that you were doing that was making a mistake, or you'll have more confidence in your results. Right. Well, thank you so much, Steffi, for coming onto the podcast today. We are so grateful. And it's been really interesting to hear about your path in science, as well as sort of the work that you do, which is way over my head. And you made it so easy to understand. And so we're really appreciative of that. Thank you so much. And we hope to have you back soon. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to see you and and talk to you. Thank you so much for tuning in. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you to Dr. Steffi Diem from the University of Wisconsin at Madison for talking to us about things that we would never have been able to explain in the way that she did. And man, dog agility training is so cool. Why not throw a link up on our website to one of Dr. Diem's dog agility runs? It was pretty insane. It's so much fun to watch. If you want to follow me, you can follow my Twitter because really that's the only place I occasionally put anything. I am at James underscore read three. That's R-E-E-D, the number three. Chris, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Great Goulet, G-R-8-G-O-U-L-E-T. Or if you want the full perspective... Anytime, anywhere you have internet, ChristopherGoulet.com. And finally, you can find me, Jason, on Twitter at OrganJM and probably sitting out on my deck listening to The Grateful Dead later. So I hope you stop by. If you want to follow this podcast on Twitter, go to at ScienceNight1. And for all of our other social media links, including YouTube, uh, other things. We're not really active on Facebook, but we have one. Go to our website, SciNight.com. That's S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T dot com. We will be back in two weeks. Until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. For more information about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. If we don't call this episode Some Like It Hot, we're doing it wrong. There we go. We've named it. Hey, we've got the episode. (laughs) Okay.